now return to Numbers chapter 35, and we're going to look at this whole chapter. The title for our meditation tonight is Fleeing to Christ. Fleeing to Christ. Last week we looked at the previous chapter along with a portion of chapter 33. And we noticed there the, a people with a purpose. And in chapter 34 we found that the Lord marked out the borders of the promised land for them. And then he, the Lord appoints the princes to oversee the dividing up of the land by lots. And we sought to draw one or two lessons from that for ourselves. But here in this chapter, we basically have two sections. And therefore, there will be two items that I will head and draw to your attention from this chapter. First of all, I put it to you that from verses 1 to 8, we have the provision for the Levites. Just remind ourselves again that the, the people of Israel were on the, the border of the promised land. Life was going to change for all the tribes. And it was also going to change for the Levites. Earlier on in the book of Numbers, we found that the Lord was providing for them in tithes and offerings. And now as the people were going to go into the promised land, and yes, they would have to fight for some time before they were established. But the, this section of the Numbers is really looking forward to that time when they're settled. And when they're settled in the Promised Land, the Levites will no longer be living near the tabernacle. It, they're going to be in a country. The tribes are all going to be spread about. And who's going to look after the, the Levites? So the Lord is making provision for them. And what we find in this chapter here, that in the first section of this chapter, that as the life of the nation was going to change when they go into the promised land, and as he had made provision for the tribes to have their allotted inheritance in the previous chapter, he was now going to be concerned about the Levites. And he was going to provide for them. Because they were not going to live around the tabernacle. That would not be possible in this new promised land. So they were appointed cities and places where they could live. And where they would have land to have their cattle. And that would be one way of providing for the Levites. And there would be occasions, obviously, when the Levites would have to go to the tabernacle to undertake work. But once they're finished, they would then go back to their, the cities that have been designated for them. And this section would tell us that 48 cities were assigned to the Levites in total. 48 cities from all the tribes. They were to be situated all over the promised land. And those tribes that had a bigger portion of the land, they would have more cities set aside for the Levites. And those who did not have such a great span of land, 
they would not have so many cities set aside for the Levites. But the point is, the Levites were to be provided for, and they were to be spread around all the tribes, all over the promised land. Each tribe would have Levites, as we find in verse 8, And the cities which you shall give shall be the possession of the children of Israel. From them that have many, ye shall give many. From them that have few, ye shall give few. Every one shall give of his cities unto the Levites according to his inheritance, which he inherited it. Now, maybe a wee bit of a history lesson here for us. If we go back and think about what happened in Genesis chapter 49. There we have Jacob, or Israel. He's blessing the twelve sons of Israel before he dies. And he's predicting and prophesying what they will be like after he goes the way of all the earth. And what will happen to his sons. And this is what he says about Levi. I will scatter them in Israel. I will scatter them in Israel. And he was telling Levi that he will be scattered. And it was really a punishment or a curse that came upon Levi. Why so? Well, Levi, along with Simeon, were very cruel. And there was a time when Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by a man called Shechem, who lived in a place called Shechem. Now Shechem actually loved Dinah and wanted to marry her after he raped her. The sons, Levi and Simeon, concocted a plan whereby they would agree to this, provided all the males of Shechem were circumcised. The males of Shechem decided they would agree to this, and they were circumcised on a certain day. Three days after that, Simeon and Levi came along when the men were sore and slew all the men. It was a cruel act. And Jacob, their father, was horrified about it. And when he came to bless his sons, he remembered that. And he said, I will scatter them in Israel, Levi, because of what he did, because he was a cruel individual. But God turned the curse, in some sense, to a blessing. Because by this time, the tribe of Levi were the clergy, if you like. They were ones who were the ministers of the gospel, and they were ones who were ministering at the tabernacle, and they were ones who were serving God. And therefore, when he says, I will scatter them in Israel, there they were. The Levites were scattered all over the promised land, And they were, in some sense, serving the Lord. The prediction, the prophecy had come to fulfillment. Truly, they were scattered. But the 
the curse had been turned to a blessing in the sense that these Levites were all over the land of the promised land and they were going to be a blessing to God's people. Well, is there a wee bit of application for ourselves? Well, we're inclined to believe there is, friends. There is. Well, obviously, we notice here that God was going to provide for them. They were ones that he needed to provide for, and he was not going to overlook them, and he did provide for them. But there is something else that we could draw from this for ourselves. We know that congregations have ministers. And we know that ordinarily a congregation will have a minister for some time and it may well be that minister gets a call or what else, he might retire. And then the congregation is, is vacant for some time. What happens? Well, we find there that <coughs> The people miss the minister. The people miss the ministry. It's not exactly the same as it was. But here we find the Levites were out and about in the country, in the land, and they were ministering to the people continually. And the Lord's blessing was truly upon them. And then we find also that, <coughs> we find here that in, in amongst these these 48 cities, there was going to be cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. And these cities there were going to be for <coughs> uh, the, a provision for if someone killed someone. We're not talking about if someone uh, killed a person intentionally. There was going to be no refuge for them then. But if someone killed someone unintentionally, without forethought, without enmity against them, there was going to be a place where they could run and where they could find refuge. And this was going to be found in amongst the Levitical cities. There was going to be six cities of refuge, provision for people who had committed what we would call today manslaughter. They would run to this city and they would find a refuge. And this is what we find in the second half of this chapter that takes up most of what we find in this chapter from verse 9 to verse 34. We have the provision of the cities of refuge. Now, as we look at this section, what do we find? Well, we find here that it clearly tells us that one who murdered another was to be put to death. This is clear. It is absolutely crystal clear. It doesn't matter what weapon was used, whether it be iron in verse 16, or stone, in verse 17, or wood, in verse 18, it mattered not. If someone committed murder, they were to be put to death. And they were to be put to death 
by the revenger of blood, we are told in verse 19. The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meeteth him, he shall slay him. Now we would ask ourselves, who is the revenger of blood? Well, the revenger of blood in the Hebrew is Gaul. And what it means is redeemer or kinsman or a deliverer. Now remember we're dealing here when there was no magistrate, there was no law courts and therefore the revenger of blood was one who looked after the interest of the family. He was the next of kin, the kinsman or the redeemer or the deliverer. And when the family was in difficulty, or if one member of the family was in difficulty, the revenger of blood or the redeemer would act on behalf of the family. We could think of maybe someone in the family who got into debt. And as a result of getting into debt, they were brought into slavery. Well, it would be the revenger or the redeemer who would go and rectify this problem. He would redeem the person and bring them back into the family. He would pay for them to be taken out of slavery. And this same avenger or redeemer would be one who would, if, there was a, if his brother, for instance, married a wife and he died without having children, this revenger or redeemer would go in and marry his brother's wife and raise up children to his brother. That's what he would do. That was his role. And therefore he was one who looked after the family. And on this occasion, if someone was murdered, the revenger of blood himself would slay the murderer. Obviously after evidence. Obviously after judgment. This is obviously implied. And there was no other sentence for it. None whatsoever. If the murderer, the proper sentence was he was to lose his life. There was no way out of it. The murderer couldn't pay a fine, for instance. Verse 31. Moreover, you shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be put to death. So the, the case of the murderer was quite clear. He would lose his life. And his life would be taken by the revenger of blood. But what about if someone killed a person unintentionally? They were to flee to one of these six cities of refuge as we find in verse 15. These six cities shall be a refuge, both for the children of Israel and for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that everyone that killeth any person unawares may flee thither. Once they were in that city, they were safe. That is, they were safe until... The judges of, the, of that city heard their case. And if their case was upheld, then they were safe. But if their case was not upheld, they would be handed over to the revenger of blood. But they were free. 
until their case was taken up. And if they were innocent, if they were not found guilty of murder, they would be able to stay in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And after the death of the high priest, that person was then free to leave the city of refuge and go back to his homeland and take up his life again. The manslayer could not pay a fine. He was exactly the same as the murderer. Verse 32. And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. Therefore, this person who may have had money, he would not be able to go <coughs> and say, here, I'll give you X amounts of money if you let me go and let me go back to my homeland. No, he had to serve there and stay there until the death of the high priest. And if he stepped out of the, the city of refuge or, or its bounds before the death of the high priest and the revenger of blood met him, the revenger of blood would be able to kill him and he himself would not be guilty of murder. Verse 27 tells us. Well, as we seek to draw some lessons for ourselves, we notice initially that these laws were only applied to the people of Israel who were about to occupy the promised land Initially, It was relevant to them initially. But the principles of these things are relevant to us today. And the most obvious one is, what does it teach us? Well, it teaches us the sanctity of human life. This is the lesson we're certainly meant to learn from this long section here from verses 9 to verse 34. It all tells us about the sacredness, about the specialness, about the uniqueness, about the dignity of human life. And if a murderer murders someone, then he must lose his life. This is what it teaches us. As I said, this applies to the, the people of Israel as they were going into the promised land. But... If we go back to a verse that we quoted actually on the Lord's Day in the morning, it would remind us there that in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, where God is speaking to Noah after the flood, and here was Noah at the beginning of a new world, we might say, and God tells Noah in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And therefore, what he said to Noah, as the head of the new humanity, it is relevant for all humanity. Here this was brought to bear upon the children of Israel. But what we find, what was given earlier, way back in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, applies to the whole of humanity. And therefore the point that I'm laboring to bring to your attention today is that this is relevant to us today. However much 
The modern mind and the modern man might recall about this and think it's harsh and cruel. This is God's word. This is what he has said for mankind. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And surely this is telling us an impression upon us the sanctity of human life. This is obvious application to the, the pandemic that we have today regarding abortion. It's wrong. But I'm quite sure that I'm speaking to the converted regarding that matter. And I don't wish to labor with that matter with us today. But we can murder in other ways. We're talking here about a physical murder. It's obvious. It's wrong. And it must be punished according to the way that God has prescribed. But there are other ways which we can murder. The Lord Jesus Christ, who basically was expounding the law of God, the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount, reminds us again there about our tongues. He says in verse 21 and 22 of Matthew chapter 5, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. True. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. True. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now there's a lot in these two verses and we're not going to unpack them all. But basically what the Lord Jesus Christ is telling his would-be disciples there. That if we hate a brother in our heart, it is heart murder. And if we speak unadvisedly and rashly and nastily against a brother or sister, then it is murder by the tongue. This is what he's impressing upon us. We're so inclined to think that the commandments are just concerned with our physical actions, what we do with our hands and our feet. But that's not the case. When we speak ill of one another, when we're nasty and backbiting, when we run people down, when we speak behind their backs, when we're bitter and full of criticism and sarcasm, it is but murder in the heart, or murder by the tongue, or murder by words. I think I'm quoting it correctly, but as a child, I'm sure you've re recited this. Sticks and stones will not harm me. Is that what it says? Something like that. 
sticks and stones will not harm me. Or I can't remember, it's gone, but you know what, I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to tell me. But words can hurt. But more than that, words hurt, cruel words hurt those who utter them. It defiles them, it causes them to be heart murderers or murderers by their mouths. And anyone who physically murders, it has an effect upon them. And you can be sure that those who lamblast other people without any reason, you will find that they themselves are harmed by their action. Do you think a murderer can commit a murder and he thinks nothing of it? Oh, his conscience may well be hard. But you can be sure it affects him. Yes, it affects the victim and it affects the victim's family. Of course it does. And it has a wide effect upon the community. There's no doubt about that. But the murderer also is affected. And so it is with the heart murderer. And so it is with those who murder with their tongues. James says, If any man among you seem to be religious... And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. James is talking to first century Christians. And if I understand that correctly, it's in the context of the, of the church gathering. And in James's time... There was, the services were much freer than they are today. There would be some dialogue, maybe. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, if he can't control his tongue, if she can't control her tongue, what does he say? But deceiveth his own heart. A mark of a Christian is... That their tongue is controlled. James goes on to say, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. No man can tame it. But grace can. God can. That's what James is saying. And if someone cannot control their tongue... If it's snapping, if it's biting, if it's snarling, if it's against individuals, and bridleth not his or her tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. These are strong words. If any man among you seem to be religious... If anyone has a high profession and makes a great profession, but if they can't control their tongues, the confession or the profession is worthless. That's what James is saying. The psalmist, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. 
the physical murderer is easy to identify. Let's not just look at a physical murderer. Let us look at ourselves. Look at our hearts. Look at our tongues. Doesn't James say something like this also? We praise God with our tongue, yet we curse men with the same tongue. This should not be. Sticks and stones shall break my bones, but names shall never harm me. That's what I was trying to remember. Well, <coughs> this is what this passage tells, tells us about the murderer. But what about them? What does the the teaching about the manslayer teach us? Well, it teaches us something too. It also teaches us the sanctity of human life. It also teaches us that human life is special. You know, he could run into the city of refuge and provided he was not guilty of murder, he would live, he would not die. But it also tells us that human life is special, it's precious, because he was not free to leave that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. In some sense, the death of the high priest made atonement for the sin or the action, if you like, of the manslayer. The murderer had to die. Otherwise, the blood of the victim could not be made atonement for. The manslayer, he could only be set free when the high priest died. Surely his life was on hold until then. He was, what we might say, really in an open prison. His life wasn't free. He could live in that city of refuge. He could move around the border. That was it. He couldn't go anywhere else. And if his, his home was far away from it, he would have to leave his livelihood and everything behind. And he couldn't take up his life until the death of the high priest. Telling us how precious life is. But what else? Well, surely, friends, it reminds us, above all, when we look at the manslayer, and when we look at what we find here, it reminds us of our Redeemer. It reminds us of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We notice here there were six cities of refuge and they were relatively easy to get to. There was three on one side and three on another side. And according to what I've read, anyone could get to one of these cities of refuge within half a day from any part of the promised land. Within half a day, if they moved, they would be able to get to a city of refuge within half a day. This reminds us of Christ. There were six cities of refuge. There's only one saviour. 
Now, I'm not talking about easy believism here, friends. I'm not. But one Savior, and in one respect, He's easy to get to. He's easy. He tells you, come unto me. He's here in the gospel. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Christ is there. In his word, you are to call out to him. It's easy in that respect to call out upon the Savior. You don't have to run for half a day. You don't have to go to a minister. You don't certainly need to go to a priest. You need to have personal dealings with the Lord Jesus. That's what's required of the sinner. The manslayer, he was safe in the city. He was safe. So is the Christian. So is the one who, who runs to the Lord Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. The manslayer, he went to one of these cities. He was confined to that city for as long as the high priest lived. He couldn't go to the means of grace. He couldn't go to where the tabernacle was. But what do you find? He was there with the Levites. He would be able to speak with the Levites. He, if he had a problem with his spiritual life, he would be able to speak to the Levites. There was provision for him, for his soul, in the fact that the Levites were on hand. And this is what I was trying to drive at it earlier. It's remarkable, friends, that we know that the unbeliever has no time for the, for the minister or for a, for a Christian who will give him some advice about things. We know that. The unbeliever runs away from the minister or the unbeliever will run away from a, a person who will speak to him about his, the needs of his soul. But it's remarkable that some professing Christians will not even go near their minister or a, another professing Christian to, to speak about the things of the Lord or to ask advice. There's something not right. There's something wrong in this. If someone who is a, a professing Christian doesn't want to have any kind of communication with a minister or with an elder or with a, a professing Christian to speak of the things of the Lord and to open up their heart, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Here, the person who is in the city of refuge, yes, he was deprived in some sense from the tabernacle and what went on there, but he did have access to the Levites. And he would get knowledge and advice and counsel and wisdom from them. And so it is with a Christian. He has access to the Lord Jesus Christ, his great high priest. And this reminds us too, as someone said, it's talking about the church and how the, how the church and the congregation should be a, an embracing community. This is what he says concerning the church. Should, the church should be a community of 
forgiven sinners who are a community of forgiving sinners. I hope you recognize the difference. I'll repeat it. Talking about the church and the congregation, it should be a community of forgiven sinners who are a community of forgiving sinners. In other words, we should be in a place and in a situation where we can forgive one another. Why? Because we have been forgiven. And we know the joy of having our sins forgiven. And therefore it should not be a difficulty to forgive others their faults and their failings. This is what the, the manslayer would find. He would find this in his time with the Levites in the cities of refuge. In that city, friends, in these cities, he was secure. There was no walls, no gates, no bars. Why was he secure? Because by divine appointment, that was the place for him to be. And as long as he stayed there, nothing could happen to him. So it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Safe and secure in him. And even... Even, we find here, even strangers and sojourners who had committed manslaughter. They would find refuge there. Not just the people of God, not just the covenant people, but as verse 15 tells us, even strangers and sojourners would find refuge there. And this is to remind us of the universality of the gospel. But the most remarkable thing of all is, friends, when we consider the cities of refuge, they were for those who were innocent of murder. They were, in some sense, innocent. But our city of refuge, our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ is a city of refuge for the guilty. For those who have committed all kinds of sins. For mouth murders, for heart murders, for physical murders, for adultery, for fornication, for whatever, for liars, for cheats, whatever. Here's the great difference. The cities of refuge there were for people who had not committed murder but they were guilty of manslaughter. Our city of refuge is for all sinners. That's why we have to flee to Christ. Flee to him. He is the ultimate city of refuge. The Levitical cities of refuge remind us of our need to be found safe and secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. 